0: Welcome to the Foxy Podcast. Bi-monthly show brought to you by Freeform Freakout. The show is produced at KMSU Studios in Mankato. And here on the Foxy Podcast, we try to dig deeper into underground and experimental sounds of the past and present. on this edition of the Foxy Podcast, we're going to be focusing on the work of the San Antonio, Texas-based micro press, Kendra Steiner Editions, run by writer and poet Bill Shoot. Starting in 2006. Kendra Steiner Editions began publishing small runs of hand-assembled chapbooks by contemporary poets, and then later began issuing forth a wide range of forward-thinking experimental music on CDRs, with releases by several artists we've featured on this show over the years, including Rambutan, Parashi, uh, Derek Rogers, Ernesto Diaz Infante, amongst others. So on this show, we're going to be chatting with Bill about both the music and poetry sides of Kendra Steiner Editions, discussing uh, his own work and motivations as a poet and publisher. We'll be spinning some tracks from new and forthcoming releases, and then we'll hear some of Bill's own poetry works. So before we get into our conversation with Bill, I'm going to play a piece called Marion, Texas from a release called Subtraction that he did with Anthony Gira.
1: Marion, Texas A train whistle Deep Textured Prolonged Spreading and melting Across the west side Of Marion, Texas Like cheap yellow Oleo margarine On burned day-old bread Calling me out of my stupor. Town full of metal buildings, once thought temporary. Different colors of paint having faded into a dull sameness. But lacking any initiative to move, once settled. Porn rentals, steeped with the flavor of yesterday's fried chicken, under the convenience store counter. High school pregnancies under the radar. Major brand beer purchased in 24 packs. The ruling class won't even live here. Supervising their properties and investments. Their tenants and managers and gophers from the comfort of air-conditioned San Antonio suburbs. While we bake in our mobile homes and labor in our metal workplace furnaces, crusts hardening and thickening until we become ash, to be scattered, to be liberated, by some future wind from the East.
0: So I know that Kendra Steiner Editions was initially just a a small press publishing, you know, like poetry chapbooks, and then later on it was that you started putting out music as well. So just to get us going here, could you provide us with just some general background information about Kendra Steiner Editions, and then I guess what was sort of the impetus for starting up your own press and then later... I guess, label or imprint?
2: Well, I didn't intend to start a press. Uh, It sort of happened by accident, and I'm glad perhaps it happened that way, because sometimes if you plan too much, uh, it it doesn't have the spontaneity or or freshness as when it just happens. Uh, The situation was, I had a poetry book called Twelve Gates to the City that came out from a press in California in late 2005. And in early 2006, I was doing some readings and book fairs in support of that book. And in the time period since that book had been published, I'd written a few new things, some of which dealt with some timely matters of things that were happening here in Texas. And I wanted to give those to people at the reading uh, and give them to them if they bought a copy of my book. And uh, I thought, well, gee, it's so difficult getting a book published. It takes like a year to go through the whole process. I'd like to have these poems, these new poems available for people at the readings. So I just went to the computer and thought, okay, how can I do something simple by desktop publishing and produce my own version of these poems and distribute them at the readings. So I created uh, a little form, which is still the form I use today for the poetry chapbooks, and I printed that first one, which was called Four Texas Streams. And I had to give it some press title, so I just, my daughter's name is Kendra, And I just created a kind of jokey title, Kendra Steiner Editions. (laughs) And I didn't intend to do anything more than that one initially. But that was well accepted. Um, People were asking me when the next one was going to come out. Uh, Volcanic Tongue in Scotland uh, was interested in handling it and told me they'd be interested in handling anything else that I put out. So I just figured, wow, I've really got an opportunity here. I can do whatever I want creatively, and I've got an outlet for it. So I just ran with it. (laughs) And after a number of those of my own, I started approaching other poets whose work I respected, and I felt like, you know, I'd like to read more work by this person. So I would invite them to join, and it just kind of grew from that, like a snowball going downhill. It just sort of picked up more along the way and became larger. And then a couple of years into that, uh, I extended to CDRs and music. So that's, that's the way things have progressed. And while I do sort of have a yearly plan that I work by, it's very spontaneous and free-flowing, and I, I do try to keep it that way. Mm-hmm. So that if something comes out of the blue that really excites me, through this simple little setup I have,
0: I could have it out
2: in a couple of weeks.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And I always
2: want to keep that freshness and spontaneity.
0: Well, you had actually, you ran a label back in the 1980s, it was called... Early 80s, yeah. yeah. Uh, called Inner Mystique Record. Right, Inner Mystique. And, and uh, I guess that was sort of a banner for yes, a lot of was. different things that you were involved in. Um, you know, there's yes, I had a
2: scene prior to that. I had a radio show later in the 80s that aired in Canada, even though I recorded it in Virginia. Um, so, yeah, I used the Intermystique moniker for a number of things. I did columns for Black to Come magazine for probably over 10 years, and that was the uh, handle that I used. Mm-hmm. Well, so I, I've trotted that uh, label out on many an occasion.
0: <laughs> well, in looking back on, on what you were covering and publishing uh, through Inner Mystique, how would you say that your interests or perhaps your motivations have changed or evolved with what you were doing now with Kendra Steiner Editions?
2: Well, I consider Kendra Steiner Editions really just an extension of what I was trying to do in the 80s. Of course, I'm more knowledgeable now, I more savvy now, and also, things are a lot easier now. Um, in some ways, I consider our press an extension of the mimeograph underground presses of the 1960s uh, that were, you know, an independent way of, um, of publishing. D.A. Levy and those kind of folks, uh, Ed Sanders, who were involved in that sort of thing. I sort of have roots going back to that. But honestly with the desktop publishing with home CDR burners with the decentralization of the arts in general where there's so many more artist curated labels and people issuing their own work, uh there's been a decentralizing in the arts which I think is a really healthy thing and that allows me to Uh, do a lot more than I could have done in the 1980s. So, uh, you know, in many ways, as bad as things in society might be, and in politics and this and that, I really think we're in a golden age in many ways right now in terms of the arts.
0: I guess on that note, I mean, it is difficult for you know artists to maybe earn a living, but at the same time, it's much easier for them now, given the, like what you're saying, the decentralized nature of just getting your work out there. Do you see right. that? I mean, as more of a as a positive, or is it making it more difficult for for artists?
2: I don't know. Um, in terms of earning a living from your art, um, I don't know if if that's worse today than it was in the past. It might. It might well be. But to be honest, most of the musicians who I work with and the writers I work with. Uh, have a day job, which in a sense allows you a lot more freedom as an artist because you don't have to compromise your art for the marketplace. Uh, Now, in many cases, the work they do is related to uh, their art. In some cases, it's not.
0: I mean, when you look
2: back at at 20th century literature, you have someone like the poet Wallace Stevens who worked in the insurance industry, or William Carlos Williams, who was a doctor. You know, some of the people I work with, like for instance Tom Crean, the guitarist, uh, putting out his album this summer. Uh, Tom is a guitar teacher, so he works in a field that is related to his art. Whereas other people, you know, have day jobs that aren't re- aren't really related to their art at all, but that's how they pay the bills. In terms of though getting your art out to people in a pure form the way you envision it without too many intermediaries getting in the way or gatekeepers uh, keeping it from others until it conforms with what they want. I think we've sort of really leveled the playing field.
3: Mm -hmm. I mean,
2: I've been a supporter of uh, and worked with small presses and small labels since I was a teenager in, like, the 1970s. And honestly, I think things are better now in terms of artist-oriented and artist-curated labels and presses uh, than it was in the past. And, of course, technology has allowed us to decentralize these things a lot more, so while some things are not as good as they were in the past, uh, I think so many other doors have opened mm-hmm. that it's a, lot better, it's a lot better situation. I know it certainly is for my operation. Mm-hmm. I couldn't have done this in this way back in the 80s right, right. or 70s or even 90s.
0: Well, we're going we're gonna to move into some music here uh, with some forthcoming stuff that you have, both new and forthcoming material. And you had already kind of uh, mentioned this one from Tom Crean, uh, which I was really, really impressed by this release. So I guess first, would you want to just take a moment to provide uh, an overview of some of the things that you have coming up? And then I guess secondly, as a follow up, would you want to tell us a little bit more about Tom Crean's work and then how you discovered that?
2: Right, I have. Um, I made a note of the of the things you were going to play in your first set. Tom is a guitarist and banjo player from Western Massachusetts. Um, I first heard of him because he had worked with and studied with uh, Anthony Braxton, and I've been a Braxton fan since I was a teenager in the seventies. Mm-hmm. And he he had worked and studied with Anthony Braxton. Uh, he plays in a group that has a varying lineup called Banjo Assault. And I think he's really pushing the boundaries of acoustic stringed instruments playing. Like Ernesto Diaz Infante, who's also on our label, Mm -hmm. but, you know, in a very different way. Also, we're going to be featuring another person who's a free thinker on the stringed instruments, uh, Ralph White. I don't know if you're familiar with him or not, but he's from Austin. And he's going to be doing something that will probably come out around Christmas. Okay. I'm someone who grew up with the records of Derek Bailey and Hans Reichel, Fred Frith, Sonny Chirac, those kind of people. So I'm really always interested in what the forward thinking guitar and banjo and mandolin players are doing. So I've tried to include a number of people like that Ernesto, Tom and uh, Ralph White on the label, and uh, I'd certainly be looking to bring other people uh, into the label, too, in that vein.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Also, you have uh, Sprills of War lined up. Uh, that's Eva Kelly from Austin. Uh, she also works in the duo On More with Andy Hendricks. Uh, you know, many Austin musicians are in multiple bands, and each band has a different focus and a different combination of people. Eva's uh, really a super talented lady. She spent a number of years in the UK. She recorded in the late 90s over there, and she came to the US in, in 2003. Uh, I've worked with her uh, personally in a poetry and electronic music trio. We did a performance, and uh, that performance was issued on a CD called Fascination, which you might have. Mm-hmm. It was a live recording of her and Daniel Hippolito and then me reading poetry. And um, Eva, even if she's working with feedback or found material or in the noise vein or whatever, there's really a strong sense of lyricism and a strong sense of songwriting craft, uh, kind of like under the surface of the iceberg, so... Anyway, I'm really a a big supporter of her work, and I'm very excited about the Sprills of War album. It's more sound art than it is song-oriented, but her punk bass and the echo of the Velvet Underground or Loop or Spacemen 3 is really there under the surface. So I would uh, encourage people to uh, listen to the Sprills of War and also the On More album that feature Eva. Uh, You're also going to be featuring Forbes Graham. Forbes is a Boston-based trumpeter and composer. Uh, I discovered his work when he did an amazing album with the percussionist Tatsuya Nakatani. So I contacted him and asked him if he'd like to do an album for KSE, and fortunately he agreed. And he's someone where, and this is a motivation for the people that I feature on the label, I simply thought, there needs to be more Forbes Graham albums out there.
3: <laughs> there are only
2: a few, and I felt there needed to be more, so I thought I would do my part in order to make that happen. So that's what the uh, you know how that Forbes Graham album uh, happened.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: As for Alfred Twenty Three Hearth, he's someone who's been really at the forefront of free jazz and free improv since the late '60s when he first recorded. And his bands have included many of the greats of Free Jazz, Paul Blay, Sonny Chirac, Svenaki Johansson, Peter brotzmann and many others. Uh, when I was a high school kid, I had one of his albums called Canadian Cup of Coffee, and I used to carry it around with me, uh, along with my copy of Chalk Mask Replica and other
3: <laughs> albums
2: that I was trying to introduce people to back when I was in high school. So I'm really honored that he and I have been working together for a few years now. In fact, this is Alfred's uh, fifth album for Kendra Steinridge. That's right,
0: right. He's played in various other combinations and stuff. That Yes,
2: exactly, exactly. And he really throws himself into many different uh, situations. Um, I feel as though I'm like a gallery owner, and I'm placing my space in the hands of someone like Alfred for whatever kind of exhibition he wants to put on. He has free reign. And I know that an artist really appreciates that, you know, it's kind of putting full faith in his or her vision. And when there's an Alfred Harth release, that, that's basically what I'm doing. It's like, Alfred, do what you need to do. Like ESP Disc used to say, Um, the artist alone decides.
0: That's right, right.
2: That's that's kind of the same uh, motto that I try to have here.
0: I think the only other one that uh, we're going to play in that first set is from Bell Tone Suicide, which is a bit of a a reissue, this version of it.
2: Yes, we did three-inch CDs for a while. When I started doing the CDRs, I did both full-size ones. The first two were Plastic Crime Wave and Derek Rogers. And I also did 3-inch. Now, the 3-inch had its good side and its bad side. Its good side is I could take a pocket full of them up to Austin (laughs) and distribute them easily. I could put them in my shirt pocket. The bad side was they wouldn't play for half the people who wanted to hear the music. I had a high error rate in the Burns when I was... Making those things, so I scrapped that format after a while. Uh, some of them I reissued. In the case of the Belltone Suicide, who's Mike Barrett from Western Massachusetts, you probably know of Mike's work. Mm-hmm. He's done a lot of things over the years in different combinations, and he himself runs a label. Uh, we did an extended release of the three-inch. He had recorded other things at those sessions. So we just included that with the reissue. But that is, you know, when I first got the, the master of the original three-inch version of that album and put it on in my car stereo, I almost drove off the road. <laughs> it is just over-the-top analog electronics. Yep, yep. I mean, if there's such a thing as Donzo electronics, that is it. <laughs> so, I mean, that's an album you, I do not think you can top. In, in terms of what it is. So I'm, I'm really happy to make that available again in an extended form.
0: Well, I'm sure and Mike
2: is a great guy. I've done some collaborative things with him, and uh, I'm, I'm sure I will in the future, too.
0: Well, I'm sure that track will jump out within this set, but uh, let's, let's <laughs> jump into uh, something from Tom Cream for this forthcoming one called Wired Love. This is the fourth cut on that. It's called Improvisations on, trans- on Transcription, Boom Boom Pow Part 1.
3: I <laughs> uh so...
0: maintained uh, a very minimalist DIY approach with both your chapbooks and CDR releases. So with so many people moving to say tapes and LPs with these very elaborate printing and packaging and such, what has been the appeal for you with sticking with say just the CDR medium or these stapled chapbooks that you put out?
2: Well, I just feel that's the niche of the market that we work well at, and I'm not out to conquer the world. The independent label movement and the proliferation of artist-curated labels, uh, there's been a wide variety of approaches, and I celebrate them all. It's all fine with me. If it works for someone and uh, the artists on that label, go for it. You know, I have no problem with folks who do these lavish art editions or 10-copy, lathe-cut dishes disc editions and that sort of thing uh but for us we just basically do low budget cdrs and poetry books where we incorporate the lo-fi approach and the limited technology into the aesthetic um honestly i think of the kind of uh limited technology industrial approach that Warhol took to those silkscreens in the nineteen sixties. And I feel like that's uh an influence on on the KSC aesthetic. Also, I've always celebrated poverty row B movies of the past and micro budget filmmakers like Andy Milligan and Al Adamson. So on some level, I feel like we're working in that outsider tradition. Also like Moxie Records or Fred Cole's productions, if you remember the albums that he put out on his own label by the Rats and Dead Moon and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. The uh you know, limited technology mono sound. I remember one of his singles, you could hear the sixty cycle hum in the background, <laughs> uh, when the master tape started and we're in that tradition that's that's what i would say about that uh... also you can take more chances when you have super low overhead also i can give the artists more copies of the books and the cds for them to sell on the road and place in local shops and that sort of thing when the overhead is low we don't have to worry about whether this will sell or not and we don't have to you know cater to the demands of the marketplace it really doesn't matter if it sells or not the initial outlay is not that much so i think people can have a much freer vision to do what they want to do because we don't have to worry about recouping a big investment like on the Lone Ranger movie now <laughs> <laughs> that's right there's not 250 million there's probably not 250 uh there's probably not a hundred um, really involved in our releases, so that gives us a lot more freedom.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, another thing, unlike a lot of uh, micro labels out there, you've you've avoided kind of doing these like you know track previews and streaming all of these things from your website. It seems like you have to have stuff all over the place now. Um, right. Is that something that you're opposed to, or, or do you have an interest in making? Uh, Kendra Senior Edition releases available digitally at all.
2: No, I that's not that's not going to happen. I don't have an objection to that myself. Uh, you know, the the releases that we put out, I basically lease the material from the artist for a twelve or eighteen month period or until it sells out, whatever comes first. And I know a number of the writers and musicians after the period of the lease of the material for their KSE release, have put the things online.
3: Mm-hmm. If it's
2: music, they've put it on Bandcamp or SoundCloud or something. If it's poetry, they put it on their own blog or they've, you know, put it at an online poetry site. That's fine with me, but that's just not um, that's just not where I'm coming from. And really, I feel it's because KSE issues
1: artifacts
2: three-dimensional artistic creations you can hold in your hand. I don't really think the content, quote-unquote, can be divorced from the artifact. The poem is not the words on the page. It's this item that you hold in your hand that weighs something that we have created. So, you know, that's, that's why we operate that way. Mm-hmm. as far as putting samples online I try to do a good write-up of each item upon its release and put it on the on the KSE website and with our low prices which is very important to me people can afford to take a chance and if they're not willing to take a chance for a five or six dollar poetry book or a seven or eight dollar CD well you know they're not really supporting the arts very much in my humble
3: <laughs> opinion. Yeah.
2: Um i you know, the quote that sticks in my mind. The great uh, actor uh, of of Warhol film fame, Joe D'Elisandro, once said, "I work cheap, but I don't give it away,"
0: mm-hmm. and
2: that's that's my uh, motto here. I would say <laughs> that's how I feel.
0: Well, you've mentioned before uh, in, in in previous interviews and some conversations that we've had that Corwood Industries. Um, has been an influence on how you approach running KSE. Um, so I guess in an era where it seems that artisan labels have to constantly be promoting what they are doing across so many uh, social media outlets and websites, what have you, I guess, how does the Corwoods model hold its appeal for you? How does it fit within this uh, current musical landscape, if you will?
2: Well, even I take PayPal, uh, and of course Corwood does not. You have to send a physical check to the post office box in Houston. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't know. In terms of Jandek and Corwood, you know, as an artist, I think the uncompromised purity of his vision has really been an influence on me in both the books and the the uh, CDs. Also, I do, you probably know this, but I do virtually all the artwork on all of our releases. Unless there's a credited artist, I do the artwork, which would be like probably 95% of our releases. And we've got 260 releases now. So I'm sure that over the years I've done over 200 artworks, and I do feel that the core wood aesthetic in terms of the cover photos of walls and chairs and that sort of thing has definitely been an influence on the artwork that I have used in these releases. Also, I like the practical, functional, plain aspect of the presentation of the Corwood releases. Uh, That's been a big influence on the look of our releases. I know that a couple of critics have complained about that, And um, I I don't know what to say, except if you, and you know you can do this because you've got them all at the radio station, if you were to lay out 15 of these releases on the table, you would automatically see, wow, there's a really consistent vision here and a really consistent aesthetic. Um, Just like with many labels of the past that I've respected, whether it be... ECM or SST or other labels, you see one of their works and you know it when you see it. So I feel that we have that identifiable style. So Mm -hmm. I like to work within limited parameters and limited technology and use that as a kind of limiting agent that forces me to be more creative in other ways. And again, that's kind of like the low-budget movie aesthetic. I love it when people are forced to become creative because of not having any resources and to go beyond and use their imagination to fake things rather than to... or suggest things rather than spend the money to actually create them, you know? And I feel that's what we're doing with, with our limited uh... technology here I, I that's part of the aesthetic and that's part of the whole picture so that's definitely something that will be kept and that's something that Corwood has uh... has influence i mean there's so many things about those releases for instance, there's always a five-second pause at the beginning of each track. Right, I'm right. sure you've noticed that. When you look at the counter on your CD player, re- the music starts at 005.
0: It, it always throws us off when we're queuing things up at the radio I'm station. I'm sure
2: it does. <laughs> and you know, originally, there may have been some technological reason for that. And Horwood has kept that. Like, for instance, the back covers of those releases, basically what he was doing was using the inexpensive house font at the pressing plant. That's, so, that's what that is.
0: Like the cheapest I know, font. because
2: I had records pressed at A&R in Dallas in the early 80s, and that font was one of the fonts you could get for free that you didn't have to pay extra for. <laughs> so, so initially, I feel it probably was done for economy's sake, but then it became part of the aesthetic, and it was kept.
3: Yeah, yeah. And we
2: do a lot of things in that spirit. Initially, we did something simply because that was how I knew how to do it, and then we just kept that, and it was incorporated into the aesthetic.
0: Sure. Well, we're going to move into another set of music here, kind of a a mixture of some newer things with some, I guess, some deeper catalog uh, selections here. But I'm going to start off playing with another uh, Texas-based group called Book of Shadows from their most recent one that you put out called Chimera. You want to just set this up and tell us a little bit about Book of Shadows?
2: Yeah, they've been around for many years, 10 or 15 years at least. Uh, The core of the group is Carlton Crutcher and his wife, Sharon. Carlton was in the original lineup of ST thirty-seven, and um, they operate out of Elgin, Texas, which is east of Austin. And uh, they're really specialists in higher key psychedelic jams. They're rooted in Yahowah thirteen, I would say. Mm-hmm. By the way, I'm also happy to. I don't. I don't think you're playing anything from it because it's an uninterrupted 45-minute track.
3: Yep. <laughs> but we
2: do have an album by Jane Aquarian of Yahoo that I'm really honored to put out.
0: Yeah, that's a phenomenal uh, release, but I, I couldn't bring myself to just play an excerpt from that. Is no, that really- it
2: works gradually over 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. I, I agree that it's probably not excerpted. Right. But the Book of Shadows, uh, folks, are very much into... That kind of tribal psych, I think you might call it uh, they're, they're also you know deep into the crowd rock and early 70s space rock and that sort of thing, and there's also a deep spiritual dimension to their work. Uh, I think they almost view their music as spiritual practice, and they're very serious about creating like a sacred space through their music. I'm just an incredible uh, fan of theirs. They have albums out on labels all over the world. I mean, they probably they have dozens of things out over the years. But I'm really honored to to have them on the label. On some level, I do try to document the Central Texas scene. I mean, we have a great we have a great number of great artists here, and we don't we have some labels documenting it, but not enough. So we have these people creating these major works, like I feel the Book of Shadows album is. So uh, that's gotten great response from all over the world. So I'm very happy to have that. And uh, I hope that I can work with them in the future. We did a three-inch CD with them a couple of years ago and then had the opportunity to do this full CD. Mm-hmm. And KSE sponsored a couple of musical events a few years ago. And, Uh, Book of Shadows played at one of those and uh, did a did a phenomenal job. So, I hope the people in the audience uh, will listen to that and uh, hopefully pick up pick up a copy of that. Yeah.
0: Well, let's play a track. This is the opening one from their latest release. It's called Dragonfly Children. You, you've written in a variety of formats over the years. We've already mentioned uh, the Inner Mystique column that you had in, in Blog2Com, or Black2Com, rather. And no, it's Blog2Com, right?
2: It's Blog2Com now. It used to be Black2Com. Mm-hmm. And prior to that, it was FUD.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay. I had that yeah. correct. All right, but I also wrote for many years
2: for ugly things.
0: Oh, okay. The graduate I joined
2: that with issue number two, and I probably was with that for about fifteen years.
0: Oh, wow! Yeah. I
2: haven't been in the recent issues, but I'm still good pals with uh, Mike Stacks, and I, I did that uh, back in the '80s. I I had a piece here and there in some larger circulation things. I had a piece in Option, if you remember that. Mm-hmm. I had a piece in Living Blues. So I've I've done a lot of music writing over the years, but um, poetry has all, and I've done nonfiction and writing for hire and journalism and lots of other things, but poetry has always uh, really been my first love.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you, I mean, what what drew you towards writing poetry? And then I guess as a follow-up to that, what is the appeal or perhaps the challenge of this form of writing that that keeps you inspired to continue to develop your craft as a poet?
2: Well, poetry, I'm too young to have been around in the 60s. I was technically, you know, alive then, but I was a a little child. But uh, growing up in the 70s, the remnants of the 60s were still available, the books of poetry from underground presses and that sort of thing, you could pick them up for next to nothing at used bookstores because they had only been published eight or ten years prior to that. So, and I remember looking at that scene as a little boy, even, and it seemed as though poetry was much more integrated into the all-around underground art scene. You know, you might have... uh, psychedelic band playing and show an underground film and then have a poet like ted berrigan do a reading and it all sort of fit together and that really inspired me i mean i'm not a musician i'm not a painter uh words i suppose are are what i do and so obviously i saw poetry as the vehicle uh, for me. And I read these books uh, by Paul Blackburn and Ted Berrigan and Lewis McAdams and Diane wakowski and many of these 60s writers, uh, John Wieners, uh, Larry Eigner, and of course earlier pioneers like uh, Gertrude Stein. And these were kind of the people who inspired me. Uh, to try to go my own way. When I was young, um, I lived right down the road from Boulder. I lived in Golden, Colorado. Oh, okay. And uh, Allen Ginsberg lived in Boulder in the 70s, uh, and Naropa was founded uh, back in the 70s there. And I was able to get Allen Ginsberg to read some of my stuff when I was, I don't know, a college freshman, high school senior, sometime in that period. I couldn't afford to go to Naropa or anything like that, but he was nice enough to look over my stuff on a few occasions and uh, gave me some excellent feedback. He, he really understood what I was trying to do and showed me the barriers that I was setting up for myself in doing that. And um, I was, a, was of a great help to me. And also to have someone like an Allen Ginsberg take me seriously, you know, and, and treat me almost like a peer who was less skilled than he, but not like a, you know, stupid child or something, <laughs> was really encouraging to me. So i certainly want to pat him on the back uh, posthumously here yeah, and right. thank him. I know he did that for many, many people, as Robert Brealey did. They were both known as people who were very supportive of people starting out. So that that kind of gave me a pat on the back, and I was involved in poetry in Colorado in the late 70s, had a few local publications and did some readings and this and that. But honestly, after punk hit and that sort of thing, I got more into music writing and writing for journalism and for publication and to get paid and this sort of thing. So although I continued in voracious reading and small press poetry, I sort of moved in other directions. I moved to other states. I had a family to support and uh, poetry writing got put on the back burner for a decade or two. It was only in the early 2000s that I came back to that in an active way once again.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, in, in choosing some of your poems to include in this show, you had mentioned that the poem Digression, Lines for Lenny Tristano, it was from your Uh, Release Junk Sculpture from the New Gilded Age, that that pretty much describes uh, your entire aesthetic as a poet. You mentioned that to me, uh, particularly the second part of that poem. So before we play that selection, I'm wondering if you could, I guess, um, describe some of the elements contained within that piece that really get at the heart of your work as a poet.
3: Well,
2: Digression, Lines from Lenny is is a poem where this is something I do pretty often, I think, where I will take an artist in another discipline, like jazz or contemporary composition, contemporary classical music, or painting or filmmaking, and I will study that, and I will try to somehow transpose the structural elements of that artist and that other discipline into poetry i do that often in fact i'm working on a piece now that i do that i'm going to have actually a few volumes coming out where i do that with different musical pieces by duke ellington i've done that in the past with painters like papies and twombly i've done that with filmmakers Uh, You know we have that ongoing sound library series Mm -hmm. of poems. There's like 70 or more chapbooks by dozens of authors where we use music as a kind of prompt. This was my attempt to take the uh, aesthetic of the Lenny Tristano School of Jazz, and I'll let people just Google that name. It's Lenny spelled I-E, Lenny, Tristano. Lee Konitz, the saxophonist, is probably the best-known exponent of the Lenny Tristano school. I tried to, in this poem, find a poetic equivalent of the Lenny Tristano development of ideas and form in jazz. And one of the passages in this poem, and I'll speed up my reading of it here, but one of the passages in it about seamless creation... Verse and chorus one, melody implicit, form ever becoming. And uh, slipping down into uh, whether it's blackbirds falling from the sky on New Year's Eve, tainted water rising to the surface, jailing of whistleblowers, an enlarged prostate, working overtime off the clock, or finding the ultimate asada torta. It slipped into the flow over the core changes of Cherokee within the walls of the Sound Library chapbook, as natural, as unconscious, as inevitable, as inconspicuous, as steps, or speech, or breath, or joy, or pain, or confusion, or clarity. In a sense, that's my poetics uh in a nutshell really on that uh in that particular passage on that particular page. The final passage of it, which I won't read, where I talk about um that's the trick becoming so taken for granted that you attain in attain invisibility. You're always there, always with an alibi, erase the ego, sharpen the silence. Um In a sense, that's also about my poetic strategy in the sense that as a poet, I almost feel like I'm a fly on the wall. I'm a fly on the wall of all that's happening around me. And, you know, as a poet, you get a kind of invisibility because the average person doesn't really care about poetry. They don't dislike it. (laughs) They don't like it particularly. It's like, oh, you're a poet great. You know, just don't read me anything. Once you write it, we'll get along fine. So it's kind of like you're almost like, uh, remember Zelig, that Woody Allen movie? Uh, The poet is almost like a Zelig who can just sort of wander around chameleon-like, and nobody really cares. So you can just go in and out of situations like a fly on the wall and sort of just be a recorder of phenomena and that's my function in a way mm-hmm. you know so that's why i felt that this particular poem both captures my role as poet and also my aesthetic in the way i create my works there are really a lot of different styles of poetry in my body of work i've done sonnets I've done things in different forms, and honestly, I create a new form for each work. Uh, The line about the form ever becoming uh, is is an example of that. Uh, But I do feel it's important to keep my feet on the ground and be able to connect with a general audience when I do readings. I've done readings in bars. Uh, I've done readings in places where you don't necessarily expect an audience that is first in postmodern poetry so what I do is I'll tell the audience who don't necessarily have a background in that since everyone loves movies and knows how movies work I'll tell them to think of a movie montage sequence when they hear my work I said think of it as a poetry version as a montage sequence there's not a clear linear narrative but it's a collage of images meant to create a mood, or a feel, or a situation. And they all understand that when they see a film, and they get that out of the montage. Um, So really, I think they just have to let themselves go and let the poetry wash over them. And that series of images presented in a kind of collage, montage method will have the same effect that a montage sequence will have in a movie. Mm -hmm. And people generally do get that when it happens. And for that reason, when I'm reading in a live environment, in a bar or in a bookstore where you have all kinds of people, not just poetry readers, most probably aren't poetry readers, that they will get what you're doing. And one thing I'm happy about is when I do my works, people laugh in the right places. (laughs) (laughs) And... They're they're silent and long faced in the right places, which tells me that I'm connecting with the audience, and, right. and that's very important to me to be able to do that. Now, obviously, you have different works for different audiences, and like a musician who needs to know what will work with this particular crowd, a poet has to be able to do the same. Sure, and really. yeah, I certainly I certainly try to do that and cater the reading to the, uh, the audience and the
3: venue All
0: right. Well let's, let's play this uh, track Digression, Lines for Lenny Tristano, I shouldn't say track, I should say poem it comes from your release Junk Sculpture from a New Gilded Age and after we play that we'll come back and talk about some of the, uh, the readings and works that you have coming up in just a moment Okay
1: Digression Lines for Lenny Tristano more lime, more calcium buildup in the pipes, so less water pressure. Number pieces of acorn and sparrow, of brake squeal and trash pickup, of metal transmission shop overhead doors and car stereo bass blur. Those who've been domesticated now set free by their masters to love, to work, to suffer, to starve, and finally to swallow the hook. Between the Air Force Base and the Interstate. Between one's first drink and one's final meal between what's remembered and what's anticipated pant leg caught on a nail in the door sill coming from outside and stumbling into the shotgun shack of consensus reality my neighbor just returned from the latest remake of The Best War Ever. Unable to sleep through the night. To forget what he saw and participated in. To not lunge toward any sudden movement or flash. They've given him funds to attend the local two-year college and to earn his Six Sigma certification. His life partner will never know the details but will taste the sting and caress the shell and appear with him on parade days. The poles have been shifting And we've been moving toward maps that are so large and detailed and textured and three-dimensional that soon someone will be furnishing these images of locations, giving them street addresses and offering them for lease, hoping no one notices. And perhaps we won't. Perhaps the proverbial frog will adapt to the boiling water. Perhaps the mere idea will make sense impressions as irrelevant as slide rules. Sleight of hand on the ultimate scale. Seamless. Creation Verse and Chorus One Melody Implicit Form Ever Becoming Whether it's blackbirds falling from the sky on New Year's Eve, Tainted water rising to the surface? Jailing of whistleblowers? An enlarged prostate? Working overtime off the clock? Or finding the ultimate chicharron taco? It slipped into the flow over the chord changes of Cherokee as natural, as unconscious, as inevitable, as inconspicuous, as steps or speech or breath or joy or pain or confusion or clarity. No one ever asks the Texas flag painted on the barbershop's back wall on the alley what it's doing there. And many men could not tell you the color of the plastic flowers in the bathroom. That's the trick. Becoming so taken for granted, one attains invisibility. Yet always there and always with an alibi. Erase the ego. Sharpen the silence. Smile. Thank everyone. Open the door for them. And walk through.
0: All right, so you have a poetry reading coming up here in just a couple of weeks in Pittsburgh, right? Yes. Yep. What are what are some really. of the specific, uh, you mentioned about uh, creating works that are sort of meant for a specific audience or venue. What is it that you sort of have in store for this show?
2: Well, this is a joint reading with one of uh, our KSE poets, uh, Jim Dupers. Jim is really an amazing talent. He um he's also a musician, but in terms of poetry, one thing that he's done is he's working on a trilogy. I have done put out two volumes of it. The third will come out next year. That is to Pittsburgh what that great poem Patterson was to Patterson, New Jersey for William Carlos Williams. And Pittsburgh is the city of the three rivers. And each of these works is named after a separate river in Pittsburgh. And it deals with Pittsburgh history and Pittsburgh culture and even gets into archaeological things. So Jim is an amazing talent. His most recent chapbook, which you may have, is the one called Thelonious Fake Book.
0: Yep, yep, I have that one.
2: Where basically what he tried to do, kind of similar to what I was doing with the Lenny Tristano one, though in a purer form, is literally he took these music pieces by Monk who really created his own vocabulary in music and he tried to sort of just transpose that into poetry on the page. And I I think it's an amazing creation. I think people who like postmodern poetry and people who like um, the music of Thelonious Monk and avant-garde jazz in general would really appreciate that uh, book. But Jim's reading with me, and it's at a, a bookstore, a used bookstore called Amazing Books in Pittsburgh. And uh, they're going to be stocking our chapbooks and music releases in the future. So in a sense, this is kind of like a kickoff mm-hmm. for their relationship with uh, Kendra Steiner Editions. Uh, Pittsburgh is one of my favorite places. I have a lot of friends there. Our work has always been well-accepted there, and uh, I'm really excited to go back there. As a matter of fact, segueing slightly, digressing, we're going to have a release coming up uh, probably in about six to eight months by an artist you know from Pittsburgh, uh, Jennifer Barron, The Garment District. Oh, yeah, yeah. We're putting out a full album of kind of trippier, extended material from Jennifer. Mm-hmm. That won't be out, obviously, at this time, right, right. but it'll be out next year probably. But uh, I've known her for a while, and I really enjoy her work. And I'm, you've played things by her on your show, if I'm not right,
3: mistaken. That's correct, yeah.
2: So I have a great, uh, really excited about uh, issuing something by the Garmin District. So, we, And we've had other Pittsburgh poets, uh, Brad Kohler and other folks involved with KSE, so I like to think of Pittsburgh as one of my homes away from home. Uh, one work I'll be premiering there that hasn't actually appeared in print yet, but it will be coming out in the next couple of weeks, is one of the most recent things I've written called Worried Men and Wooden Soldiers. Uh, This is a a piece in six parts, and it's a a somewhat political piece. Some of my pieces move more in that direction, and, you know, it's a difficult balance to try to keep something which works as a quality piece of poetry and isn't just didactic and sloganeering, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. So it's a difficult balance, and I, I hope I pulled it off with this piece, but... I wanted to read, if you don't mind, the final section of the six sections of this Worried Men and Wooden Soldiers chapbook.
0: Absolutely, let's hear it.
2: Now, this is, this is in six pieces. At the end of the second, fourth, and sixth, And the sixth is the final piece that we're going to read. At the end of the second, fourth, and sixth movements, you might say, of this, I have a refrain that incorporates the title phrase in a different context. I've been working with using refrains at different points in in my poems in the last few things that I've done. I've, I've done that in various ways for years, but I've made a more explicit point of doing that recently, so... Anyway, I've got the book in my hand, so let me go ahead and read the final section of this piece that I just wrote in May and June called Worried Men and Wooden Soldiers, section 6. We're being drug tested again tomorrow, but not for the opiates. Of consensus reality and manufactured consent addressed not by our names but by our function until we wear out marinated in flop sweat sauteed in bombast The spotlight shines on those who've fallen off the merry-go-round. It's meant to make an example of them. And there's no incentive to look away. High on incontinent fever dreams of exceptionalism and empire, they create a wasteland. Fill it with a genetically modified buffet and designer babies and call it peace. Kept in place by worried men and wooden soldiers. So there's that uh, piece for you.
0: Excellent. And you'll be reading the entirety of that poem? Yes. Okay.
2: Yeah, it probably runs ten minutes or or something like that. It's in six pieces that are about the same length. I sped it up a little. I generally like to leave a good amount of space. I sped it up a little here for your listeners.
0: <laughs> um, well, let's talk about You said that is due out here in a couple of weeks. What are some of the other upcoming uh, chapbooks you have coming out on Kendra Steiner editions?
2: Well, um, I just put out two things in the last couple of months that are art and poetry chapbooks. I've done a number of those over the years, too, where I kind of dialogue with visual art. I use the visual art as a prompt. Um, One came out a couple months ago called Meditations on a One-Way Trail that Austin artist and musician Daniel Hippolito uh, created a suite of artworks for me. Uh, and I used those as prompts and created a group of poems. Uh, actually, Daniel's doing an, an exhibition, an installation in Denver. I think he may have already be on the road for that. But he's taking some copies of that up to uh, Denver. And then a new piece that just came out last week of mine, which where I use my own artwork, my own photography, um, just came out. And uh, that one is called The Language of Construction. And that features my own photography, and I sort of dialogue with those pieces in poetic form. The top part of the page is the artwork, and the bottom half is a poem that is prompted by that uh, artwork. So we have those two. And then the next two chapbooks that are coming out, I'm super excited about, in that they are... Uh, poetry books by people who are probably better known as musicians uh, or people who work in other fields, um, visual arts, uh, sound design, other fields too, but they're great poets. The first is Graham Lambkin of Shadow Ring and Kai Records fame, and I know you've You've interviewed Graham, haven't you?
0: Yeah, he's been on the show and a couple you, of times. Yep.
2: Yeah, and you've featured his work a lot. Right. Uh, he's definitely a renaissance man, as you know. I mean, he's a great painter, uh, composer, spoken word artist, and um, he's a follower of, of our releases. He We trade releases, and uh, he's got a good collection of KSE things. And... He just, uh, as a lark, sent me a CDR of a spoken word thing he did in England, and I really liked it. And I, you know, I'd read his writings and this and that. So I invited him to do a chapbook, and um, he came up with a brilliant uh, new book called uh, Slimmer's Verb, or is it Slimer's Verb? You'll have to be the judge, <laughs> but because um, it has one M. Originally, it had two M's, okay. but that's just part of the story. Anyway, it is a brilliant piece of work, and uh, I've had a few British authors over the years. He's originally from, from the UK, and this, uh, there's something about the sound of poetry by someone who is from Britain that is special and unique, and there's such a musicality about these poems. I just love them. Uh, I don't know what to say about them. They're postmodern, but at the same time, there's echoes of Lewis Carroll and that sort of thing. And if you know Graham's work, I'm sure you can imagine that. (laughs) Unique combination that he comes up with. I mean, he's a classicist, but at the same time, he's super contemporary and vernacular. So I'm, I'm really excited about that, and there's been a lot of interest in that book. The next release that I'm very excited about is... From uh, musician Matt Crefting from Western Massachusetts. Uh Matt's been in many bands over the years, uh including Son of Earth, uh one of the one of the great bands, I think, of the last ten years, fifteen years, and he's done superb work on a number of different labels in different countries. And I put out an excellent album of his uh music created from tape manipulations and uh, Sweet Days of Discipline, that one was called. And again, I'm familiar with his spoken word performances that he's done back in Massachusetts. So I invited um, Matt to do a book of poetry, and he produced a beautiful work. It has a lot of the same qualities as his music. It's primal, but it's elegant at the same time. Uh, I don't know how to describe it. It has some elements of Robert Creeley, it has some elements of Gertrude Stein, but it's 100% crafting, and I'm really excited about this. Also, I'm excited about giving him an opportunity to do poetry, because, you know, he's pretty much involved with his music performances and this and that, and he really has a lot of literary talent and I figured, gee, I should give him an outlet for that, because he's so busy he might not really pursue it that much. And since he's done that, he's told me it's really helped the flow of written work, so I hope he does more in the future. But those two are coming out. And, uh, you know, we have a number of other poetry books scheduled for the fall. We have some exciting music releases. Uh, Speaking of Western Massachusetts... We have uh, something coming out probably around Christmas time by the Arts Collective, Egg Eggs, if you're familiar with them.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah.
2: They have a number of um,
0: is this the one releases that's
2: on Feeding, feeding Tube. Feeding
0: Tube, yep, yep.
2: Right, they're doing something. The guitarist and banjoist from Austin, Ralph White, is uh, doing a release uh, we'll have in 2014 another release from Alfred 23 Hearth uh, from Korea. You know, originally German, but he's been working in Korea since the 1990s. There's the Garment District from Pittsburgh, and uh, many many other things. I. I don't want to discuss things where I don't actually have the master in hand <laughs> because sometimes they don't always come together.
0: That's right. So we'll just
2: leave it at that point.
0: All right. Well, let's, and, um...
2: uh, As I said, I'm starting a new series of works that are inspired by various musical pieces by Duke Ellington. Okay. So hopefully over the next year or two you'll see some of those popping up. Uh, and the one I'm working on right now is called Circle of Fourths. Mm -hmm. So I'll just plant that seed, and maybe in three or four months, you will you'll see
0: that come out. (laughs) Well, um, I'm actually going to close out things here uh, with the show from something from that release you did with Marcus Rubio. It's called Only the Imprint of an Echo Remains. And I'm actually going to play two consecutive tracks because what the work was based on is some of your spoken word stuff, and he would then take that and manipulate it in a variety of different ways. And I guess before we, we jump into that, I'm just kind of curious if this, um, this process and working in, with sort of musical accompaniment and such, is that something that you would like to do more of in the future?
2: Well, it's funny you mentioned that, uh, because I actually have some... We'll get back to Marcus in a second. I actually have something like that that is being done as we speak. You remember that uh, we released an album by Fossils from Hamilton, Ontario? Oh, yep, yep. Um, they asked me if uh, I would be interested in supplying them some vocal tracks, which they would then manipulate and use as the basis for new sound creations. Now, unlike marcus rubio's album that we'll discuss in a minute where you can hear my words and sort of at least half the time tell that these are manipulations of voice tracks with the fossils guys i'm sure it will not be evident at all <laughs> what the source was uh, and it's not going to be billed as a combination fossils bill shoot thing because basically i am handed them the vocal tracks and they'll create their own album from it the way that the album that they did for me earlier was using piano and accordion musical tracks as the source material that then they manipulated. So, uh, there's an example <laughs> of yeah, right. something that I'm, that, that they're doing with, with my voice. So, I, you know, I'm interested in doing anything like that that opens new doors. I do at least once a year. I do some kind of combination, uh, poetry, spoken word, and improvised music or electronic music performance. I've done some, a number of them in Austin. I've done some back east when I visited back there. I'm hoping one of these summers, not this summer, but maybe the summer afterwards, that I can get back to New York State and Massachusetts. I have invitations to do those music and poetry performances there. Uh I have some invitations in Ontario also. So, you know, hopefully I can get there and uh do those and I'm always open to doing new recordings of that sort. So, we'll see, who knows what will come up. In terms of the Marcus Rubio thing, I'm very happy about that because Marcus is a San Antonio guy like me. Um Although he now is living in L.A., he's earning his master's degree in composition at Cal Arts. But Marcus is a local guy, and uh, went to Trinity University, grew up here, and I knew of him uh, from his performances locally, and we attended all the same shows and that sort of thing. When the No Idea Festival was in town, we would both be at that and that sort of thing. So we got to know each other, and. We did this album together, which juxtaposed my reading of different poems. We recorded this in one of the rehearsal rooms at Trinity University. Basically, it juxtaposed my reading of three poems with new electronic compositions that he created using my voice as the source. Now, Marcus is a literary man himself. He's actually done settings for the texts of Gertrude Stein, and he's done uh, settings of vocal pieces uh, in contemporary classical compositions and this sort of thing. So this is something where he was conscious of the meaning of the text and tried to find a way to capture that musically. And also, some of my words... Are There's echoes of them, and uh, I think he just did an incredible job mm-hmm. as far as that goes. I'm very happy with that album, very proud of that album, and uh, very proud to work with a fellow San Antonio person, uh, Marcus Rubio, who's a really super talented guy. Uh, if I may make a plug for one of his releases, uh, his most recent release is called H-Blank, h it has an h an underscore and an h and it's on already dead tapes is that out of chicago are you familiar with that i I know the
0: name but i'm not sure it's based out of yeah
2: wherever just uh, google marcus rubio and already dead tapes that's a fantastic album that is his most recent album that i'm aware of i'm hoping in the future that Marcus's compositions, because I want to emphasize contemporary composition on on the label too. We've had some examples of that. Certainly, some of Alfred's things would classify in that category. We have the Nick Henny's album, The Percussionist. Uh, again, you couldn't have excerpted part of that no, for no. the show tonight. But Nick is a contemporary composer who does percussion pieces in Austin. And I really want to feature contemporary composers and give them an outlet for their work. And Marcus does a lot of composing. And we've got our fingers crossed. I think a couple of members of the symphony orchestra will work on this with him, and uh, that might be something that we're able to do in the future. So um, anyway, he's a man to keep your eye out for, uh, Marcus Rubio.
0: Well, yeah, let's, uh, let's jump into these closing tracks from that album. We're going to start with the one where you're reading The 25th Life of Alcyone. The
1: 25th Life of Alcyone. Sucked through an elevator shaft, a leak in time. Surface scraped clean by the snaking steel cables. And broken glass. The apples are free at this white flame hotel, rooms to let upstairs, but no reservations, no clocks. New vessel, new wine. Only the imprint of an echo remains. the windows we cut into the walls of the residence of dusty glass or of stained glass or of no glass where we have made an opening will determine our route. Fifteen centuries before Zoroaster on an island south of the Mediterranean and north of the Sahara Sea, Alcyone was born into opportunity among fountains and orchards. Sirius, his brother, fastened the harness on himself, assumed the routines, pulled the weeds, supervised the harvest weighing the almonds and garbanzos counting the tangerines curing the tobacco freeing alceani to study philosophy illuminate manuscripts travel to distant centers of learning in egypt and india studying and widening the self, assembling the bridge that unites visible and invisible. As shadows lengthen beyond the limit of Neptune's empire, where the murmurs fail to resonate, PINE SEEDS ARE GROUND, ZEBRAS CAN FLY, AND WINE FILLS THE WELL. HIS ARMS SUBMERGED TO THE ELBOWS IN WARM OLIVE OIL. THE TIPS OF ALCIONE'S FINGERS TOUCH THE BOTTOM OF A WOODEN tureen. THE SILVER CORD IS LOOSENED, THE BOOKS ARE OPENED, and the prawns, and the pearls, and the proverbs, and the pain of each month's weeks, and each week's days, are reviewed, spinning past him as a roulette wheel that one cannot stop or control, as he melts into the movement, as he accepts that the house always wins. A slender column of blue flame, drawn down into and through Alcyone. Ideals of the true and the beautiful and the good obscure his vision. Slightly below eye level, Alcienid tastes and hears what cannot be seen. Ceremonial trips to the capital city are no longer necessary. The sun sets early this time of year. We wait throughout the fifth act, but no climax stands up and announces itself. The pillowcases have been washed and bleached at this white flame hotel. No rooms to let, no mirrors, no drains. Harry Crosby explodes toward a black sun, his own assassin. Corporal Pat Tillman watches his own men open fire on him from less than 10 feet away. Comets follow, dark to rise by. Worms strive to be men. Petals fallen, energy transferred, the hounds have returned to the pen, the gate not yet closed.
0: And that is going to bring our show to a close for this week. I want to thank Bill once again for taking the time and speaking with us this week on our show. And uh, please follow the links uh, on our blog here to head over to the Kendra Steiner Editions website and uh, check out uh, the various chapbooks and uh, CDRs that they have available and uh, support the great label. They're doing some fascinating things, some incredible work there. And uh, if you have any questions for me in the meantime, You can shoot me an email at fffreakout at hotmail.com. Otherwise, check back in a few weeks here. We're going to do kind of a straightforward show, and then I can tell you at the end of the month, uh, we are going to be joined uh, once again. It's kind of an annual tradition that our good friend Chris Berry from Soft Abuse Records will make the trek down, uh, carrying an armload of who knows what to play for us. So uh, stay tuned for that. And always, thanks so much for listening.